Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. As the great Oscar Wilde once said, I have nothing to declare except my genius. And that brings us into this episode of This Pathological Life. Dr. Travis Brown, we're looking at what is genius. We are. So can I ask you, do you have a definition of genius? Do you have a working definition of what is a genius? Because the word's thrown around a lot. It is. Oh, this person's a genius. Sometimes it's tongue-in-cheek. Sometimes it's, no, they're genuinely a genius. We have lots of business leaders uh, you know, we talk about Microsoft and Apple, genius, uh, you know, uh, Elon Musk. All people go into this genius sort of category. But when you actually try and define it, it's quite hard. Do you have a, a sort of almost a working definition of what is a genius? I think there's two factors. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you've got the plotters who can work their way through and grind out answers to things and ways forward, not them. I, they're smart people. Uh, but I think the genius is the person who marries together an innate ability to do pattern matching, to see connections between things that other people might not see. And then the other part is a good dash of luck, that that's happening at a right point in time when when the need is realised. So I think it's that pattern matching with a little dash of luck. Mm. So... The the genius people go down often is a metric of intelligence. So, you know, IQ tests, you know, generalized tests or generalized knowledge or specialized knowledge. And it, it, look, the people's names that come to mind are things like, you know, Aristotle and Leonardo da Vinci, Isaac Newton, Nikola Tesla. Uh, and it's, it's interesting. I want to pull out three people that I've just want to examine just a little bit more and, you know, what is genius? Because my definition comes as a little bit different to yours. And Oh, yours is wrong. <laughs> and so we have, uh, first one is Galileo Galilei. And so he was in the 1600s and you know, considered the father of modern science. Uh, and he invented the hydrostatic balance, the military compass and, and the precursor to the modern thermometer. He was also known mainly for the, you know, telescope uh, and as- astronomy uh, identification of that the, the the world revolves around the sun. This was where he he even noticed the phases of Venus and identified the four largest moons of Jupiter. And when you think about the telescope that he was using, that's a phenomenal feat. Uh, but what was happening is he wrote about the helicocentric model of the sun. And that the Earth was not the centre of the universe. And that attracted the attention in 1633 of the, the chief inquisitor of uh, the Catholic Church, because this was deemed somewhat, uh, you know, heresy uh, to suggest that the Earth was not the centre of the sun. And he was actually taken to court or taken to sort of trial by the, the chief inquisitor. And, and they, they had a, a trial. We pronounce, judge, and declare that you, the said Galileo, have rendered yourself vehemently suspected by this holy office 
of heresy, that is, of having believed and held the doctrine which is false and contrary to the holy and divine scriptures, that the sun is the centre of the world, and that it does not move from east to west, and that the earth does move and is not the centre of the world. And the penalty? We order that by a public edict, the book of dialogues of Galileo Galilei be prohibited, and we condemn thee to the prison of this holy office during our will and pleasure. And as a salutary penance, we enjoin on thee that for the space of three years thou shalt recite once a week the seven penitential psalms. So Galileo agreed not to teach any more heresy. Uh, He was... uh, sentenced to jail but went to house arrest because he was you know, old and they said, okay, well, you're not going to survive jail. But he spent the rest of his life in house arrest. And look, to be able to notice or to be able to observe and completely change our thinking, mm. by the way, the Catholic Church took about 300 years to sort of admit that. <laughs> so 300 revolutions around the sun. <laughs> Uh, and it, it was it's just a, a interesting but for me you sit there and just go to challenge everything uh w- was remarkable at the time the the next person who is no surprise this is you know Albert Einstein and there's so many achievements that he had ha- had contributed you know one being you know he described what they called brownian motion so in 1827 there was a scottish uh, botanist by the name of robert brown who observed under the microscope uh, grains of pollen that moved in an apparent random way. Mm. And he explained this and, and, and couldn't work out what it was. In 1905, Albert Einstein wrote a paper on the random motion of particles in a fluid. And he explained it. And this was where the concept of atoms and molecules was realized that this wasn't just... It seemed random, but it was actually bouncing off atoms and molecules. And that's just one of the the amazing applications that Einstein came up with. He was able to determine how many atoms are in a a mole, a physics measurement. He described photoelectric effect, which is why uh, metals, when they look uh, shiny, when the sun hits them, it was actually worked out that actually the sun hitting it is reflecting off your seeing uh, electrons. He worked out the special theory of relativity, the the famous, uh, you know, he then uh, worked out the equation E equals MC squared, which is rest energy, Uh, the general theory of relativity of, you know, time and space continuum, quantum mechanics. You know, he was he was also theorized gravitational waves, which has only just been, Mm -hmm. you know, proved in 2015, meaning that cataclysmic events in space Mm -hmm. when like two giant black holes can hit each other, you can actually measure those waves. And it, it was just incredible. That was 60 years after his death. So for, for me, when I look at what is genius, I think there's a level that is intelligence, but I think you can be intelligent and not be a genius. I think for me, it's a genius is a point where people actually change the whole direction either of a field or even create a new field. And this this is where you sit there and go, the names that were read off, these people didn't just make a contribution to the field. They either changed the direction of the field or created an entire new one. And there's there's one person that I want to talk to that's relevant in, in this as we sort of look at digital pathology and 
and artificial intelligence. And then uh, his name is Alan Turing. So he was the man who created the machine in World War II, uh, and he helped break the unbreakable German Enigma code. Uh, He wrote algorithms, which today we would call programs. Uh, He was involved in cryptography. Uh, Unfortunately, his life is a measure of tragedy because he was he was gay and homosexual uh and then that was illegal at the time you know even went down the point of you know chemical castrations and he ended up committing suicide because of this persecution uh so it is a such a tragedy but well that's another genius oscar wilde similarly uh just persecuted by our society that time when they're both geniuses and that's the thing. Like the 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 amazing thing is, more often than not, these geniuses, because they challenge the status quo, uh, almost make society uncomfortable. Mm. And so that's why Albert Einstein's remarkable because he wasn't persecuted. He was actually recognised as remarkable in his field. But then we look at Galileo, and you you look at other people, Alan Turing. They either through the expression of what they were doing just caused too much friction. Uh, Alan Turing was because of his lifestyle, unfortunately. Uh, but there is a there is a test which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. It's called the imitation game. Now, this was a modification of a psychology test where three people were, would be in three different rooms. You would have a judge, you would have a man and a woman in, in those separate rooms. And the aim was for the judge to work out who the man and the woman was by the questions they would ask. And now I'm not quite sure. I've tried to work out what the point of that, I, you know. Just so I'm a man. Right. Is that what you were leading to? <laughs> I worked out, but we'd be in different rooms. Uh, but then the, the judge could ask different questions. How long was your hair? But you could lie or you could not, you know, you could tell the truth. Uh, so I, I think it was about a con- you know, concealing or, you know, trying misdirection. Uh, but what, uh, Alan Turing said was, well, what happens if we replaced one of those people and put a computer? Could a computer uh, sort of yes. pretend to be a human and trick the person who was the judge? And that was sort of the, the test. The Turing test. That, that, exactly. And that is where, if they could, then this was a demonstration of artificial intelligence. And so it's important now to distinguish because a lot of people do think Artificial intelligence means uh, conscious thinking or conscious thought, and it's not. They're very two different, you know, can a computer think, so to speak? Well, that's an interesting discussion, but it's not this discussion. And so if this is, you know, if this is the best test that we have for artificial intelligence, then we've achieved it. And because it's been achieved, you know, people actually did the Turing test on artificial intelligence and being trick computer, trick humans into thinking they're dealing with a person when they're not. But we've also moved beyond that now. And so just as an example, if we use chess, and so, uh, you know, DeepMind was an organization that that produced a a program called AlphaZero. In 2017, this computer took less than four hours to teach itself how to play chess. Um. And then it beat the world's best chess playing computer called Stockfish 8, in a 100-game matchup. And so what happened? Now, that's not new. And IBM actually created their own uh, supercomputer that was called Deep Blue that beat the best players in 1997. Uh, The difference, though, was AlphaZero was just given 
the basic rules of chess, and that's it. It then taught itself how to learn and how to beat chess and then beat the best computer at it. And then we have then uh, AlphaZero then learned uh, Shogi, which is Japanese chess. And it took two hours to learn this. And then it beat the leading computer uh, called Elmo at the time. So is there artificial intelligence? The answer is yes. But we've moved beyond the Turing territory Mm. of can we... Just trick a human. Exactly. Mm. Into now we're starting to get some powerful. So for me, AI is the ability of a program to take multiple data points, process it intelligently, and arrive at a destination or an answer that is useful. And so the question is, it exists. What are we going to do with it? Checkmate. Dr. Travis Brown, I have recovered now from that barrage of geniuses that you shone before us all. And that's interesting. Where are we now as far as the application of this AI uh, to the world of pathology, digital pathology in particular? So it's a it's in between two worlds at the moment, to be honest. Uh, the pathology works pretty much well. Let's let's say specifically histology and anatomical pathology, because this is the diagnosis that we someone cuts something out or does a biopsy on a person, and that is a piece of tissue that needs to be processed. This piece of tissue goes on to eventually a glass site. We treat it with a whole bunch of chemicals. We put it into paraffin. We slice it so thin that we can see through it with light, and then we look at it and we'll look at the patterns. And so that has been the mainstay of anatomical pathology for 100 years. Uh, Now, digital doesn't change that. Digital means, okay, instead of putting it under a microscope, let's put it under a scanner and then send it to to the actual anatomical pathologist to look at. So we still need to do all the same tissue processing. We still need to stain it. And so... That doesn't change. So digital pathology is still in its infancy, even though it's about 20 years old. Uh, It hasn't been taken up as much as I thought it might have been when it started out. Uh, And the problem is that the images scanning a single slice of skin or a single slice of liver can still take hundreds of megabytes, gigabytes for one image. And so... It's amazing because when you look at it, a single cell, which is tiny, uh, a single cell encompasses all of uh, the information to encode a human. So one single cell can create one human. And sort of if we take an image of that and put it under, it can can be hundreds of megabytes. Uh, And so it's just incredible to think just an image of that takes up that amount of space on a computer. So the problem is it is also costly at the moment and, at the, and there's no real significant benefit to just routine practice. And so I think the, the key to digital pathology is actually artificial intelligence. When we start to apply computers and starts to help us diagnose things, well, that is the key to digital pathology because then there is an indefinite advantage to taking up. So this is where the AI is looking at the same thing the pathologist will look at, but is bringing to it some projections and uh, application of, of known insights. And here's the, here's the thing. It's important to know you are, you are right, 
the important thing to know is, well, how does this work? Because people, it falls into this black box as, oh, it's just going to t- diagnose it. The current methodology is not that. What AI does at the moment, the way it does, is it gets the image and it breaks it down into thousands of other images and it analyzes each one. So if you're trying to, you know, if you've got a Ferrari sitting out the front, mm-hmm. the computer right at the moment doesn't deal with say, oh, it's a Ferrari. It would pull it all apart and then pit little bits together. So, you know, a, a human might look at it and say that's a Ferrari and then the computer pulls it apart and says, oh, here's some problems here. So you're almost at that point where you're, you're saying, well, that is how the AI mind, so to speak, in digital pathology works. It pulls the image apart and then it will analyze each of those small images and say, oh, here's a bit of perineural invasion or here's a bit of atypical or here's a mitosis. And so that is where it is at at the moment, and that's what people are trying to bring together. And then there's a whole bunch of what we call neural networks, where it goes from A to B to Z to actually draw out a pathway to say, here's what we think it is. And at the end, it gives you a probability. So, you know, there's the person will still need to look at that and say, well, there's a very high probability of being this. Yes, I agree. Or sometimes, as we all know with computers, it can come out as, well, here's 30% here, 40% yes. there, and it will still require someone to say, I agree with this or don't agree. And sometimes you always get this thing out of completely left field and you go, well, part of that Ferrari, 30% chance that it's a Ford Falcon. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's the point behind it is if you start to understand the technology and how it works, then you will start to understand here's the limitations, here's the things I can rely upon. And so what we're hoping is that this will be a powerful assistant to pathologists. I don't think it will replace, but I think there will be some mundane tasks that it might mean that we don't have to do. But this is where we start to work out digital pathology, AI, and we need to work out where we're at. Don't take this the wrong way, Dr. Travis Brown. I appreciate all the effort you put into it. But do you mind if we come back and we have a guest join us who, who might be able to peep further over the horizon? Absolutely. Let's continue the examination now of the applications of digital pathology and artificial intelligence, which is what we've been doing in this episode, and, and we have a guest joining us. Dr. Joseph Anderson, he's a consultant to early stage and mature companies in the digital pathology and molecular diagnostics space. Previously, he oversaw the clinical pathology group at Genomic Health as the Oncotype DX breast cancer assay. He served the College of American Pathologists on the Molecular Oncology Committee. And upon graduating from the University of Minnesota Medical School, Dr. Anderson completed residency in anatomic and clinical pathology at Rush University fellowship in oncologic pathology at Fox Chase Cancer Center, and postdoctoral training in molecular diagnostics at UCSF. He's also the host of Digital Pathology Today, which we hope you listen to after each episode of This Pathological Life. Welcome, Dr. Joseph Anderson. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. I'd like to start before Dr. Travis Brown takes over and just see if we can get from you an update on the current implementation of digital pathology in the US. Where is it at at the moment? Yeah, well, we're in very exciting times. We're in the midst of a digital transformation, everyone says. 
You know, so what that actually means, uh, I think, is up for some debate. I think worldwide digital pathology is catching fire. Uh, implementation rates across the world, particularly in Europe, I think, have been quite high. Uh, but in the United States, despite you know the great enthusiasm and all these tools we supposedly have at our disposal, uh, adoption is somewhat low, maybe between five and ten percent. Um, so, which may surprise people. Uh, we did get a shot in the arm, so to speak, amidst the global health emergency, the COVID-19 crisis where regulatory barriers came down, both uh, FDA as well as CMS, which is Medicare, the main payer in the United States. So it really gave pathologists a lot more leeway and flexibility in, time, in terms of signing out cases remotely, signing out cases from your living room and your bath slippers or whatever you want to wear, uh, but uh, adoption is still not, you know, not where, not where uh, we'd like it to be at this point. Can I, can I ask then some of the advantages of the digital pathology that, that you see in the, in the pipeworks? Is, is there any advantages that are, that are being missed that we're looking at under the slide with glass slide? Um, well, I think there's many advantages. I mean, it's not really new technology per se, the ability to scan a slide or digitize a slide has been around with us around for about 20 years or so since the early 2000s. I think we all remember that. But then in terms of what's taking so long and how come that's not translating into clinical practice, I think is a different story because there's a lot of advantages. I call them like secondary advantages. You know, that is, you don't have to schlep glass slides across the hall. You can share a case remotely with a colleague across the hall or across the country, across the world. You don't have to archive all these glass slides. You don't have to keep them on site. So I think there's a lot of secondary advantages, which are nice, but I don't think necessarily move the needle in terms of getting people to adopt it or to make a costly investment in a digital pathology system. Um, but I think you know, what appears to be uh, the game changer is going to be the ability to overlay artificial intelligence and computational uh, pathology algorithms, I think, which, and, and now, and it was also, let me back up a second, it's also been hard to really articulate what actually is the business case, right? So how does, you know, making an infrastructure investment in a digital pathology system translate into dollars and cents, which hasn't been clear, but the Digital Pathology Association uh, has teamed up with a lot of vendors in the space, you know, the slide scanner manufacturers and artificial intelligence companies, you know, really to help articulate what is the value proposition. I'm just going to interrupt you two, and I don't want to be the one who pours cold water on this, but one of us has to ask, what are the disadvantages of digital pathology? There must be some. Ah, yes, I think there is a lot of cold water to pour on the whole thing. Um, so I think the biggest disadvantage is that, and there's often comparisons between pathology and radiology. So radiology went digital maybe 15 to 20 years ago in the early 2000s, around 2005 or so. And then the logical question is, well, what's holding pathology back? And I think the one key difference is that going digital in pathology involves adding steps. Because in the old days, you would take your glass slide look at it under the microscope, make your diagnosis, sign out your report. Uh, going digital involves an extra step in the workflow. So you take that glass slide, you scan it, you know, and scanning times are, uh, we're the beneficiaries of technology. So it's getting faster and faster. 
Um, but it, it could take a day, right, to scan all your slides. So you're mm -hmm. adding a costly step of scanning it, and then you're adding time, right, in terms of getting that report out. So you're adding steps, which adds time and money. So I think that's the biggest uh, barrier or disadvantage to digital pathology. Have you noticed any uh, hesitancy across pathologists to actually take up digital? Because uh, I was noticing that sometimes there was a bit of a generational gap between sort of digital and people going, actually, no, I prefer my microscope, even to the point of people saying, well, if you were to emulate it in a microscope, I would watch it on digital <laughs> imagery, uh, which was a bit odd. But uh, have you found that uh, divide or is that not there anymore? Yeah, well, I mean, I think... So, you know, from a personal experience, I'm with you 100%. I mean, us old school pathologists really love, you know, especially the ones that don't work with that stage on the microscope. Some pathologists use that pesky stage, right, where it pretty much you add 15 to 20 seconds every time you move it off. But, you know, the old veterans, you just slide that glass across and it's fast. I mean, mm -hmm. people wouldn't believe how fast it is <laughs> and fun, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but I think that's kind of an inside trade secret. But the old way of doing things was very fast and relatively efficient for the individual pathologist. You know, so I think there may be hesitancy to change. And I think, but it's not necessarily across generational lines. It's probably more along the lines of personality differences. I think there's with any new technology, there's an adoption curve, right? On the on the leading edge, you have the the early adopters, and then in the 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 big meaty middle, you have, you know, the the rank and file, and then mm -hmm. towards the other end of the curve, you have the laggards. So I think uh, there's always going to be that profile of people adopting new technologies, but not necessarily across generational lines. I've seen young people, you know, in love with the microscope, and I've seen older people who want to, you know, get on with the new way of doing things. Mm -hmm. One of the, uh, we had a workshop in Australia at the end of uh, 2020, and one of the prohibitive uh, steps in digital pathology was cost, it was actually what people thought was a cost. Uh, and I remember it was about 20 years ago, I think a single scanner that would take overnight to scan 10, 20 slides would uh, cost about, I think it was a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, now, I'm, costs will come down, but are they still prohibitively uh, expensive to implementation, or is it actually attainable to the regular routine lab? Yeah, I think yeah, I think the phenomena we're looking to leverage is Moore's law, right? Where basically the cost of technology, in theory, should be going to zero or asymptotically close to zero. And so, you know, the so our ability to store images, because uh, that was a huge. I agree, that was a huge barrier, a huge concern. Not only a the cost of storing the images, but be the capacity to store these very, very, very large files, like terabytes of information. And so I think, yes, the good news is that costs are coming down. Um, and so it is, you know, it is feasible, I think, at this point for larger institutions, at least in the United States, to go completely digital, as several have already. Mm. I then if we turn our attention to artificial intelligence, because I agree with you, I think digital pathology implementation is actually probably going to piggyback from artificial intelligence. I, I think once you get that combination of the two, it will be inevitable that you'll get digital pathology implementation. But I'm seeing a lot of papers coming out uh, as to, you know, progression and where it's at. But can can you tell me where artificial intelligence and pathology is at uh, 
the current state of play. Yeah. So I think there's, you know, when we talk about artificial intelligence, I think that's a topic on its own. It means different things to different people. I think some people have like a 1950s sci-fi interpretation of what artificial intelligence means. But I think realistically, it's better to think about it in terms of specific applications, you know, narrow specific applications. And I think in terms of pathology workflows, I think there's probably two main buckets. One would be a workflow, like workflow um, uh, enhancements, that is to triage the cases. So you get the right case to the right pathologist at the right time. And then all of the uh, supporting materials, you know, that help facilitate signing that case out. So the advantages there would be um, you know, you're able to, to save time and you're able to really incorporate it into the individual workflows of the, of the pathologist. And then the second, so I think that that is a reality. Mm. And uh, so there's various uh, AI-based uh, platforms out there that have, I think they're, they're actually getting their EU marks uh, ahead of FDA clearance, um, which, which makes sense in terms of where these systems are deployed. But then the second uh, aspect would be the diagnostic assist, where it's uh, particularly in very narrow applications, again, like uh, breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, so there's two or three out there platforms on the market you know, where the AI can review all of your prostate cases and then uh, identify areas of interest, or depending on how you set it, right, uh, you know, giving you a heat map, hey, look here, something's going on. So the human being can then look there or some actually go as far as to take the case from start to finish, right? Say, well, we've looked at 12 cores of prostate biopsies. We've identified three foci of three plus three uh, Gleason uh, prostatic carcinoma. And it, it goes so far as, as to write the report. So uh, it's, a, it's a reality and that these systems are being deployed. They're being deployed in Europe and they're just starting to be deployed in the United States. So this brings me to a, a, a bit of a tricky subject, particularly for pathologists, because we then have the divide between uh, AI companies, digital pathology companies saying, hey, look, we're not looking to replace pathologists. And then the next paper is, hey, we're about to identify what you do as your job. And, you know, here you don't need to look at prostate cause anymore, which is the pathologist's job. So how do we... How do we sort of balance that as in to say to pathologists, no, AI is not here to replace it. And then we see a whole bunch of technology that looks like it is about to do that. It's quite a a balancing act that I'm not quite sure I've got my head around at the moment. (laughs) Well, don't don't ruin it for us. (laughs) I think that it does it does require, I think, some suspension of disbelief, right, as they say in the theater. Um, I think you're right. I mean, ultimately, at some point down the road, human beings will not be necessary for this kind of work. I think it's, you know, a key question is when, when is that going to happen? And when do we want that to happen? When do we want to relinquish our control? You know, and then medicine is, of course, very slow moving and human beings are still ultimately signing their name on the bottom line of that report. So I think they still have a lot invested, their medical license (laughs) for one. Uh, So... (laughs) But I mean, I think that's a fair point is that, you know, I think this is the story in technology is that, well, jobs are going to be lost and replace human beings are going to be replaced by robots, right? And then the people creating these new technologies come in glibly and say, oh, well, no, no, don't worry. We're, we're not taking your job away. We're taking your job to the next level. We're freeing you up, 
you know, we're taking away these mundane tasks and we're freeing you up to focus on the more lofty tasks. So I think, you know, and I think that's kind of the consensus. I mean, hopefully we're not lemmings going off the cliff here, but I think the consensus is that, yes, we are going to be the beneficiaries of AI algorithms. Yes, it's going to replace a lot of what we do. Um, but at least in the short to intermediate term future, it's going to be the mundane things, right? The computers are better situated to do than humans, but ultimately humans will still have the final say and the humans will still sign their name on the bottom line. On behalf of any general practitioners listening to this, should they be interested in whether or not digital pathology is being used versus a corporeal human who is uh, carrying the whole load? That's a that's a great question. So looking when I consider the business side of pathology, right? That is how do you keep the doors open? How do you bring specimens through the door? You know, what reasons do I as a pathologist have to approach a clinician and say, "Hey Dr. Smith, you should really send your biopsies to me or my lab because I will do a better job for you." Right? What what is the selling point of a pathologist or a pathology lab? And I think uh you know, laboratories that are now deploying these AI systems are beginning to make the argument that you're going to get a better outcome if you send your prostate biopsies to our lab because we deploy AI on all the cases. Our quality is higher. We don't miss anything. And we create more value for you at, a, at the same price. So I think, yes, I think increasingly the referring physicians or the general practitioners are going to be interested in whether or not labs are deploying this type of technology. And just finally, can I ask, uh, in, in all your interviews and the, the people that you've discussed AI and digital pathology with, what's the most exciting application of AI and digital pathology that you're, you would say, wow, that's going to be really fun or that's going to be really interesting to, to have applied to my day-to-day -day practice? Yeah, I think the, um, you know, I think as humans, we, we're very short-sighted or we can't see beyond, you know, what's actually here now. So I couldn't possibly imagine anything better than an AI system, kind of like I was describing before, who can take a whole case, like 12 prostate biopsies and examine that case start to finish and find all the areas of cancer, uh, assign it a Gleason score and generate the report. I mean, I couldn't really imagine anything uh, much better than that. Um, what's on the horizon, you know, in terms of day-to-day -day workflow, uh, what's on the horizon, I think, is like, so it's a qualified answer because it doesn't exist yet, but I think in our hearts, we believe it's out there, that there's so much information in these H&E slides and the computing power and, you know, the ability of artificial intelligence you know, to mine this data and to come up with, you know, patterns in the images that human beings cannot see that will yield predictive and prognostic information, uh, I think the potential is incredible. You know, so I think the big story of pathology, maybe in the 90, uh, 1980s, 1990s, has been molecular diagnostics, right? So we have the ability to, to sequence the human genome, we can extract DNA and RNA from tissue, we can come up with fancy molecular assays, that can say how likely or not a patient is to benefit from a given therapy. Should, how should they be treated with drug A or drug B? But I think the future, what we're looking at is doing this all based on the H&E image in a much more powerful way. You know, so I think that 
is incredible. That's that's going to be a game changer. That is, and it's going to you know it's going to be less tissue destructive. It's not going to destroy the tissue. In some sense, it's going to be practically free, and it's going to be I think more widely available to patients all across the globe. So I think that's that's going to be a huge game changer. All right. Well, Joe, thank you again. And just before we leave, I imagine you'd like to encourage people to um, listen to digital pathology today. And in in making a pitch for that, can you also help us understand which of the episodes of Digital Pathology Today you create and which are created with the assistance of artificial intelligence? <laughs> that's a good that's a good question. Uh, I think for now, uh, and for better or worse, it's all uh, me and the and the team <laughs> at Digital Pathology Today, which includes our producer. Uh, Danny Schreiber, but we've had one episode, one season, uh, which we've done 35 episodes, which just wrapped up. So in America, uh, we wrapped up on Memorial Day, and we will be beginning season two, uh, which will span just after our Labor Day through uh, Memorial Day of 2022. Wonderful. Dr. Joseph Anderson, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives when applicable can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening. And just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there. And we'd love to have you along.